Well, this week we get to keep plugging along with our series through Revelation. Uh, Revelation 5 we're up to, as Alan just read. Um, And and it's good to recognise, as we look at Revelation 5, that this is really just a continuation of chapter 4, which we saw last week. Uh, When we read the Bible, it's good to remember that John, as he wrote down Revelation, didn't write down little numbers along the way to evenly space it out for us. Uh, The numbers were added later, the chapters and verses later, uh, which was really helpful, I think. It certainly helps me. Um, But I think sometimes when we see that big number five, we think, oh, it's a new thought. Um, But it's not. Uh, It's the same scene, uh, the same picture, same thing carrying on uh, as we hit chapter five. Uh, And so uh, as we look at five... Uh, It's good to remember what came before it. If you weren't here last week or if you've forgotten already, uh, last week uh, we kind of moved past, we looked at those seven individual letters to the different churches and so we moved past that uh, to this scene uh, where John is given a look behind the curtains of the universe. Uh, He gets a look into the throne room of God. Um, The the book of Revelation, if you remember, Revelation uh, is just a word for unveiling, so the same word as apocalypse. Uh, And so it's revealing something that was previously hidden. And that's what's happening here, uh, a revealing of the reality of God's throne room. Uh, And as we looked through that last week in chapter 4, we saw that God is far bigger and far more powerful and far more worthy of praise uh, than we tend to imagine. Uh, In fact, we saw that when we stand before God, the only appropriate response uh, is to worship him. Uh, And it's not uh, just that we have to do that, it's that that's what we'll want to do uh, when we stand in his presence. Um, And and so looking at that, we kind of saw that ultimately that's our destination. Ultimately, everyone will acknowledge God, everyone will give him the reverence that he deserves. Uh, It's a day that we particularly as Christians look forward to. Uh, When that day comes, the world will be made new, Uh, suffering and pain and death will be gone, Uh, the brokenness of this world will be done away with. But for now, I don't know about you, but for now that leaves me feeling a little bit unsatisfied. I reckon it's fair to say that each and every day we get, we get a little taste of the brokenness of this world. Some days uh, more so than others. Uh, I had to go to the dentist on Friday. I had to get root canal therapy. <laughs> I spent a lot of that day longing for heaven. <laughs> Uh, It's a silly example, but it's true, isn't it? Often uh, we see this brokenness. We long for something better. Uh, We feel the tension of waiting for things to be made right. Uh, And as we come into this next chapter, into Revelation 5, uh, we see that that tension is there in the throne room of God as well. Uh, And so to give you a sense of what we're going to see as as we look through it all, uh, this is where we're going today. So first we're going to see that tension Uh, See how John weeps for it. Uh, Secondly, we're going to see the solution, uh, that that it's the lamb who is worthy. Uh, And lastly, we'll see the resolution. Uh, We'll see the change that this this solution makes for us in the future. Uh, I'm going to pray before we launch into it all. Uh, So how about you join with me? Lord, we we thank you uh, for this book of Revelation, Lord. Uh, We thank you that you make known what was previously unknown, that you give us this glimpse of the realities of the universe. Uh, Lord, as we grapple with it, these uh, sometimes really hard images to take hold of, Lord, we ask that you give me in particular wisdom to speak your truth, uh, help us all to understand it. And Lord, we we pray that 
through it, you'll help us to to know you better, to love you more, and particularly uh, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, It's in his name that we pray. Uh, So the tension uh, that I mentioned, we see it come out uh, in verses 1 to 4. So have a look with me. We'll read it again. It's up on the screen there or follow along in your Bibles. Uh, It says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside Uh, And so here is the tension. Uh, There's a scroll that needs to be opened, but no one is found worthy. It's devastating. Uh, It's so devastating that we see John weep and weep because there's no one who can open this scroll. Um, Now, to wrap our heads around why that's so devastating, what what a terrible thing that is, uh, we we really need to understand what the scroll is uh, that John is so desperate to see open. And in simple terms, the scroll uh, represents God's unfolding plan for the world. Uh, That plan ultimately leading to the judgment of his enemies uh, and the forging of the new heaven and new earth. Uh, In a a sense, what we'll see unfolding through the rest of Revelation as we work our way through it. Uh, We'll particularly see uh, the judgment play out as each of the seven seals is opened. Um, Now, let me show you how I landed there, how, how I saw... Uh, that that's, that's what we should see in the scroll. Uh, and to do that, we go to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we looked a little bit at Ezekiel last week. There's lots uh, to connect, chapters 4 and 5, with the book of Ezekiel. Uh, really helpful to read chapter 4 of Revelation alongside chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Uh, and note the, sim- the similarities and connections that keep going there. Um, and here we see another reference to Ezekiel, this time to Ezekiel chapter 2. Uh, where we read about a scroll. Uh, let me pop it up on the screen so you can have a look. Uh, so I'll read from Ezekiel 2, 9 to 10. And it says, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And you can see the similarities, can't you, uh, between the two passages. Uh, and those similarities means that as we, we work through Revelation, we try to figure out what this scroll is, and we've got to look really closely at what we read in Ezekiel, uh, which, you know, that similar scroll, writing on both sides. That's an unusual thing for a scroll to have. Uh, now, the scroll in Ezekiel, uh, as we read through Ezekiel, we see uh, contains words of lament, mourning, and woe. Uh, and it contains those things because it's the message that God uh, wants Ezekiel to deliver to his people. Uh, these people were facing some pretty significant judgment from God. Uh, and so it's reasonable for us to look at this scroll in Revelation and see it as the same thing. God's message being delivered to his people here uh, at this time, in the time of Revelation. Uh, and a message there comes, doesn't it, that contains some pretty significant judgments and warnings. But it also contains hope that will come. Uh, it's the message that we're going to see unfold through this book. Um, but there's also some differences between the two. Uh, when we look in Ezekiel, when we look at that scroll, Ezekiel receives the scroll and funnily enough, he eats it. Uh, and he eats it in preparation for proclaiming its message. Um, but it's different in Revelation, isn't it? John doesn't eat the scroll, well not yet. Uh, uh, instead this scroll is sealed with seven seals. 
uh, not the swimming ones, the, the kind you seal a letter with. Uh, and this is our dilemma, because those seals uh, mean that only one who is worthy can open up this scroll. Uh, now, we don't really think often about someone being worthy enough to do something. That's not really a thing uh, that happens too much in our culture. Uh, but Curse and I, my wife, uh, just the other day, we checked out the latest of Disney's remakes, uh, Aladdin. Uh, and we, we watched this new version, excited to see what it would be like. And it's not very different from the original, just real people with much the same script. Um, but at the heart of the first act of Aladdin, I'm sure you've seen it, I hope I'm not spoiling it, uh, is the search for the diamond in the rough. So the baddie Jafar, uh, he wants to get his hands on this uh, magic lamp uh, and he knows that the only one who can enter the cave of wonders and pick up the lamp is the one who's a diamond in the rough. And then he can get his genie and his three wishes. Uh, And we discover that Aladdin is the one. He's the one worthy, the diamond in the rough who can get the lamp. Uh, He's got a rough background. He's a street rat, street street rat who steals to survive. Um, But underneath his ragged appearance is a heart of gold. Uh, He's the diamond in the rough. Uh, And uh, as you watch it, part of the built-in intrigue is you're supposed to ask yourself the question: Am I worthy? Would I be a diamond in the rough? Is my heart of gold? Uh, it's a question we, we, kind of, we do ask ourselves in lots of different ways, don't we? Uh, so at the moment, Australia are asking, are they worthy of the World Cup in rugby? Probably not. <laughs> a little bit sad to say. Uh, but, but it's true, isn't it? So they're looking to be worthy. Uh, Australia's got talent. Are you worthy? Are you the one to make it? Even Thor has to be worthy to wield his hammer, see? Uh, it does come out. Um, It's a pretty tall order. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Uh, The person worthy of this, wow, what a person it's got to be. And it's more than just that general sense of worthiness. We're not chasing a heart of gold. Uh, In the time that this was written, a seal uh, was something that was pretty commonly used, a sign of authenticity, uh, showing it really was from the claimed author. Uh, but it was also security. Uh, so because of the seal, it could only be opened by someone who had the authority of the owner. Uh, so maybe it's a little bit like a password. You've got to have the right password to get in. You've got to be qualified to have access. And it conveys that sense uh, when they do open it. They're not just reading it. Uh, it's not just getting in, but it's actually doing it. There's an authority over what's happening. Uh, so, so the person who will open this scroll is the one who will bring about what it says, who will bring about God's plan. Uh, so to open this scroll, only one who is worthy, qualified and authorised can do it. Uh, now, spoiler alert, I think we already know where this is going. There is someone who's worthy. Uh, we're going to find out that it's Jesus. Uh, and we'll see why Jesus is worthy in our next bit. Um, but before we go there, I want us to just pause for a moment uh, and just sit on this moment that John has, this moment of intense sadness and weeping, it's good to notice. Uh, this, it's just one verse there. It's good to notice the heaviness of, of the weight that John is feeling. Uh, why is it so unbearable for him that, that this scroll might not be opened? Well, it's because this scroll has on it those things that must take place. 
Uh, back at the start of chapter 4, the beginning of this section, John was brought here into the throne room of God uh, to show him what must take place. This scroll has on it God's plan for history, uh, the vindication of his servants, uh, the judgment of his enemies, the establishing of God's everlasting kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's on the scroll. The way that John feels is the realisation that all of this, all of God's plan, hinges on someone being worthy enough to open it. It all hangs in the balance, awaiting for that one man. And even the hint of it not coming through is, is absolutely devastating. There's a reminder there of how hopelessly lost we are when we're left to our own merit. Jesus is the one who's worthy, but without him we are left to weep. Have you ever felt the weight of what Jesus has done? Do you remember that it all hangs on him? That it's only in him that all God's promises come to fruition. Without him we are without hope. That's the weight that John feels in this moment. See, recognising that there's only one who's worthy reminds us that the rest of us are not. It's good to reflect on that from time to time as we look at what Jesus has done, which which we'll do in a moment. And it's made all the more glorious, knowing that no one was worthy, no one else was able, there is no substitute for Jesus. Uh, That he is the only one solution, the one who is worthy. Uh, So that's uh, what we're going to think about, the solution. Uh, That's what we'll look at next, this second point, that Jesus is the one. He's the one who is worthy. Uh, He is where our hope lies. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 5. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, see, if it's not already apparent to you, it's Jesus, the lion of Judah, who can do this, who is worthy. Uh, and straight away, you hear lion, uh, you kind of get it, don't you? you? You associate lions with strength and power and courage. The lion is the king of the jungle. Uh, another Disney movie about that. Uh, if you've ever been to a zoo or, or seen a lion in real life, uh, you recognise that, don't you? They, the Lion King's a nice cartoon, but when you see one in real life, you realise there is no way in the world you would ever get in that cage. Lions are dangerous. But this picture of Jesus is far richer than just the strength of the lion. Uh, Those terms for him in there, the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, are loaded terms. Uh, They point us back to the Old Testament. Uh, They give us a broader picture of who they mean. The lion of Judah points back to Genesis 49. In it, Jacob, uh, also known as Israel, is on his deathbed. Uh, And he calls his sons to him. He says, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Uh, And as they gather, uh, they gather around him. These are his last words. Uh, And he'll tell each of his 12 sons, uh, these 12 sons who are going to go on to make up the nation of Israel, uh, something of their future. And and listen to the words that he says to, to his son Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. 
Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So he points forward to to the, uh, Judah as the tribe that Israel's kings will come from. Uh, and it gives this hint that there'll be this one particular king coming, the Messiah, the promised king that, that we see unfold throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, and this picture, we get a little bit more detail, we go a bit further, uh, when God makes King uh, David the king, uh, who, of course, was from the tribe of Judah, uh, and he makes him a significant promise. Uh, he promised that David's house and that his kingdom will endure forever. Uh, the promise was that someone from David's line, the line of Judah, uh, would be the great coming king. Of course, that's Jesus. We know that. Uh, the Messiah come. And so Jesus, the lion, is the fulfilment of God's promises. Uh, it's a wonderful, powerful picture, isn't it? Jesus, the lion, we read, has triumphed. Uh, this, this root of Jesse. Jesse was... Uh, David's father, a root of David, uh, this descendant, the promised one. There's a whole lot wrapped up uh, in those couple of bits of description of the lion. Uh, but then something quite strange happens. See, John turns around. He's been told there's this lion of Judah. And he turns around, but, but it's not a lion that he sees. Have a look at verse 6. It says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It's still Jesus, but what John sees isn't this strong and powerful lion. Rather, it's a lamb. A baby It's not even fully grown. And more than that, it looks as though it has been slain. Uh, that it was still standing, it was alive. And on that lamb were seven horns and seven eyes. Uh, now, as we've got this far into Revelation, you've probably picked up the significance of the number seven. Uh, it represents completeness or perfection. Uh, and so seven horns, uh, horns being a, a symbol of power, tells us that this lamb is all-powerful. Uh, And seven eyes tells us of his omniscience, that he uh, sees and knows all. Uh, And the reminder that those are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He's amongst the churches receiving this letter. He's there. He's present. Um, Now, what I think is incredible here is that in these just couple of verses about the lion and the lamb, we just get so much communicated, don't we? you, you all know that the movie is never as good as the book. You've heard that. Uh, people say it all the time. Uh, and the reason is that the book allows you to think so much further beyond uh, the words that are on the page uh, in a way that movies just can't. Uh, so one of the greatest movies of all time is Jurassic Park. Uh, you might not agree, and that's because you're wrong. <laughs> Uh, it is great. It, it was in its time, the early 90s, technological masterpiece. Um, but it was a great movie as well. Oh, as you see, it was just fantastic. Um, now, I was a little tagger, uh, old enough to watch it. But I distinctly remember uh, watching that movie, uh, loving it, but being that little bit disappointed. Because it just didn't quite live up to the book. 
didn't get all the scenes in it. It wasn't how I imagined it would be. So I read the book first. Uh, when I did, I imagined every, the T-Rex was bigger. There were more dinosaurs. It was more chaotic. It was more crazy. Uh, and because my imagination is way easier to do than, than putting it on film. Uh, I can imagine things that they don't have special effects for. And that's the advantage of words. With just a few words, you can paint this far grander picture uh, in your mind than you could ever replicate on the screen. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening here. Uh, I think sometimes as we read this apocalyptic writing, this crazy revelation vision symbol stuff, uh, we get annoyed at its complexity. Um, But one of the wonderful things about it is it shows us this incredible depth to what's going on. Uh, In verse 5, we see the image of the Messiah that the Jews expected to see, a strong, conquering hero who would defeat their enemies with might. But then we turn to verse 6, and we see the reality of the Messiah, the Lamb who was slain, his strength shown uh, not in conquering armies, but in his sacrifice. It's as though in just these couple of verses... John is trying to tell us that wherever in the Old Testament that you read about the lion, we should instead read lamb. Whenever the Old Testament speaks of the victory of the Messiah or the overthrowing of God's enemies, we are to remember that the gospel shows us that there's no other way to achieve it than at the cross. It's in the cross, that moment where Jesus laid down his life, willingly for us, that we find his victory. Have a look at the song they sing in verse 9 and 10. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God's persons, purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. See, why is Jesus worthy? Why is he the one and only who is worthy to open this scroll? Because he was slain. That's what it says. Because he purchased us with his blood. Because he made us a kingdom of priests. That's where we find his victory. Look again at verse 5. It tells us that. So verse 5, the root of David has triumphed. The word there, triumph, it's the same one that's come up a couple of times. Uh, sometimes uh, translations have overcome. Uh, notice it's in the past tense. It's a completed action. He's already overcome. It's done. His victory isn't going to be in some future battle. It's been achieved. And it was achieved at the cross. It's so different from the world's idea of strength, isn't it? It's different to to what the world expects when they see that word victory. Think when most countries try to conjure up an animal to represent them. Uh, What do they aim for? They aim for strong and powerful animals. England has the lion, stolen. India, the tiger. The US, the bald eagle. Russia, the bear. Uh, China got a little bit carried away. Mythical animal, the dragon. Um, Probably good to ignore Australia and New Zealand in this illustration. (laughs) But that's what we tend to go for, isn't it? We we think strong, powerful. 
But God chooses the opposite. A sacrificial lamb. Not even fully grown. The sinless saviour who laid down his life. Um, Now it's good to note of course that Jesus is not the only person in history who's laid down his life for the sake of others. Um, But he's worthy above all others and, and he's the only one worthy because he's the only one who's done it sinless. He's the only one who's done it when he didn't deserve the wages of sin. And that act changed the very course of history. Because of what Jesus has done, he is worthy to open the scroll and enact God's plans for the future. And that solution should give us a new resolution, a new song. That's our our third point, our final point. Have a look with me from verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. Um, now, first of all, as a little aside, if you've ever wondered what happens to your prayers uh, when you pray, if you ever wonder if they're being heard, uh, if God really cares about what you say to him, well, there they are. Brought to him in golden bowls. Fragrant like incense. Uh, And we'll come back to those prayers in later chapters. Um, But for now, it's great just to notice that they are valued. That your prayers are important to God. They're not lost, but treasured. Uh, Now, uh, that aside, notice what happens in the passage. Uh, Jesus takes the scroll from God and the four creatures and 24 elders that are gathered around God... Uh, We saw them last week. We found four creatures uh, were the best of creation. Uh, They represent all of creation. The 24 elders represent God's redeemed through history. So uh, the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New. Uh, And when Jesus receives the scroll, all of them collectively fall down before Jesus the Lamb. uh, And they sing a new song. Now that new song isn't just because they're bored with the old one. They're not like us going, oh, well, it's time for a change. Let's mix it up a little bit. Uh, They're not experimenting with some different instruments. You saw they had harps there uh, or styles. Um, You probably got an email this week telling you about some of the new songs that we're introducing at church, uh, which are great. It's good for us to think about praising God with different words and uh, mixing it up a little bit. But this new song for the Lamb isn't for any of those reasons. See, when we read that term new song in the Bible, uh, it tends to accompany an act of grace. Uh, It's a response to something new that God has done. Um, So have a look with me at Psalm 40. I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, This is how the first three verses go. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out up out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. I see how the psalm unfolds. I found that really hard to read because we used to sing our song with those words. I kept getting lost in it. Anyway, uh, so you saw how the the psalm unfolds. Uh, He's lost, he's stuck, uh, he's trapped. But God lifts him up. He saves him. This new act of grace. Uh, And so he puts a new song of praise in his mouth. 
Uh, or look at Isaiah 42. Um, now, I'll start with just some verses from the start of 42 so we get the context. Uh, it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in him whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Um, Now this passage is a prophecy about Jesus coming. So about 700 years before he came, Isaiah was writing uh, about this coming servant. uh, And Matthew shows us that this servant is Jesus. Um, uh, And we see this act of grace in God sending the servant. Uh, And if we skip ahead a few verses, we'll see the response. Uh, See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. And you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. So it plays out much the same again. Uh, This act of grace, God sends the servant. uh, And so a new song to sing. This new song in Revelation is a new song of new songs. This is a a defining moment in history. Uh, And so we see three sets of songs unfold through the rest of chapter 5. And with each, the number of worshippers increase, uh, grows and grows until all of creation is involved. I'm going to read through the songs that Jesus' victory led to, uh, so from the end of chapter 5, as I do have a listen to the words as well as the scope of what's unfolding. So from 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many thousands, many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in earth, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now there's three different songs there, isn't there? Each comes with increasing numbers. Uh, The first, those we've already seen in the throne room. Uh, And then the next add thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Um, Now, don't try and do the maths on that. You don't need to get your calculator out. Uh, It's just a symbolic way of saying squillions, lots and lots of angels. Uh, And then add to that, in the third song, uh, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, in other words, the whole world singing praise to Jesus. That's the picture. This lamb that was slain is worthy of the praise of the entire world. More than that, he is the focus. 
He is the absolute centre of the universe. At the start, we talked about the tension that we feel, uh, the tension of knowing that heaven is coming, but we're stuck here on this broken earth waiting for it to happen. Uh, And in some senses, reading this passage doesn't change anything, does it? We're still stuck here on this broken earth, dealing with sin. We're, We're still facing temptation daily. But in this peek behind the curtains, we're shown the reality that everything has changed. The victory isn't coming, but it has come already. Jesus has already won. Jesus' victory is a present reality. It's here and now. John has been told, do not weep. And we need to hear the same. Now, that's not to say that things in this life will be easy. Uh, We're not in heaven yet, but heaven is secure. The Lamb has already won. And so that tells us that here and now, despite the difficulties of this life, we can sing a new song. A song that is all about Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who's the Lamb that was slain. For the original readers, we've talked about this. This book of Revelation is a message both of encouragement and of warning. And I think that's true for us as well, and particularly true in this passage. What an incredible encouragement it is to read these words, to see that the victory is won, it's done and dusted, our future is secure. Though there's difficulties in this life, nothing can stop the one who is worthy. But there's a warning of sorts here as well, isn't there? See, Jesus' act of salvation on the cross is squarely at the centre of the universe. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how can we let things get in the way of that? How can we let anything else take that from being our focus? Jesus has got to be the centre of not just the universe, but of our existence. That's what we need to be on about. That's what needs to drive our lives, Jesus' act on the cross. Not because we have to, like in chapter 4 when they worship. It's not the rule we have to follow, but it's the place he deserves. He is the lamb who was slain, who laid down his life for us. He is worthy of our worship. When we understand it, there should be no other response. Now, I think we sometimes misunderstand that word worship, uh, to think of it as just singing praise. Uh, Singing praise is worship, it's part of it, uh, but it's more than that. Uh, So Romans 12.1 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. As we see this, as we see the lamb that was slain, the appropriate response is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, to serve Jesus in all your life, to be on about what he's on about, Share his gospel. Use your time, your talent, your treasure at building his kingdom. Even being here at church should be an act of service. You don't come here for your own benefit. I hope that you do benefit. But the reason behind it should be that you you want to serve Jesus. Uh, Here at church, uh, we do that largely by uh, working to spur each other on in our relationship with Jesus. And that means coming along to church even when you don't feel like coming because you know it will encourage others. 
It means talking to people you might not normally spend your time with because you're not serving yourself, you're serving Jesus by serving his people. Uh, When I send out the reminders for who's down on the roster each week, uh, usually I put in something like, uh, thanks for serving Jesus by serving his people. So whether you're on welcoming, cooking, setting up chairs, whatever it is, it's about serving Jesus by serving his people. That's worship. Uh, Now I said that worship isn't just singing, uh, but I do want to point out that part of worship is singing. Uh, We're told in the Bible to sing, just like we see in Revelation chapter 5. We're to praise God for who he is and what he's done. That's an appropriate response. Uh, The soundtrack of our lives should be Jesus. That's the song that should be playing in our heads. Uh, It's great. So uh, Again, that, that email about the new songs also mentioned our Spotify playlist. Sounds very fancy. Um, We just want to get those songs about Jesus in your head. We want you to have it on in the background. Um, Because it's the appropriate response to the Lamb who was slain, isn't it? Praise Him. And in fact, uh, I'm going to finish now so that the band can come up and lead us in praising Jesus. We're going to do it. Uh, we're going to lead. We're going to sing a really appropriate song for today. Uh, this one, "Wine and the Lamb," lifted right out of this passage, uh, captures that image of Jesus as both the Lion and the Lamb, the one who's victorious and slain. Jesus has given us hope when we were hopeless. What an incredible gift that He has bestowed upon us! How can we do anything but sing His praise? And so that's what we'll do. Coming up. Lorenz, Nadine.